<laughs> but we're, we're glad that you're here today, and uh, we are in the middle of a sermon series called Prophecy Revisited, and last week, oh by the way, I just want to mention, if you've missed any of these messages, you can go on YouTube and catch up on any of our archived sermons on our, our YouTube channel, Port Charlotte SDA. So uh, you can catch up. Kind of one has been leading into another, not that you can't follow along with today if you haven't heard the others, but uh, you can catch up on the past messages and each one kind of contributes to the next. So last week, to fill you in, if we'll give you a little bit of a review, We've been looking into Daniel and Revelation and seeing how the prophetic timeline for society and governments will go until Jesus' return. And we've identified the, the major problem in that world governments are run by sinful human beings. And when sinful human beings are involved, we do things to sustain ourselves. Many things come from a selfish place. And that's what's going on in our world right now. We've talked about the fact that our world is uh, dying. It's easy to see. All around us, our world is dying. And as, as our world is dying, human beings are trying to hold on and sustain it and, and keep it going one more day and one more year and one more decade. But uh, the Bible teaches us sort of the concept that as time goes on and the world's dying, government's dying right along with it, but... Ultimately, what we have a tendency to do is be tempted to trust in efforts that sustain life here that's so far off track instead of just trusting in Jesus and the temptations that lie with all of those, those elements. And today, we are going to pick up on that theme as well, um, but we also looked at the fact that Satan has sort of maintained influence and control through world governments throughout the ages. Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, the Holy Roman Empire, and now in Europe, and, and now the United States. And today what we're going to do is look at another overarching theme from Scripture, from, from prophecy. Why is the world the way it is right now? How have we gotten to this place, and why doesn't God intervene? Why doesn't he step in and stop this? We're going to answer that question today. And we're going to start in a somewhat peculiar place. We're going to start in the beginning, in Genesis. And we're going to, to find out something about human nature. We're going to find out something about um, an issue that we all have, every single one of us. It was just accentuated in the life of this particular person. So Genesis chapter 3 we pick up with the story right after Adam and Eve have eaten the fruit and uh, they've sinned against God. And, and what was the temptation there for Adam and Eve to sin? Was it simply that the fruit looked good? No, they had lots of good fruit to eat. What was it? Obedience, yes, that was the temptation. But if you trust God, you don't have a problem being obedient. Isn't that true? Especially when you don't have a sinful nature yet. Here's the thing, Satan fooled them into thinking that God was withholding something from them. God doesn't want you to eat from this tree because, you know, he will know that your eyes will be opened and you'll know good and evil and, and he'll be threatened by you and he's, he's worried that you'll be wiser than he is. God's holding back. That was the temptation. 
Your eyes will be open. It'll be like a whole new world, and God doesn't want you to experience that. That was the temptation for Eve. And so she trusted in herself and her own judgment and her own desires more than she trusted in the Creator. And if you've been paying attention, that's what we've been talking about over and over and over again in this sermon series. We as humans have a tendency to trust in our own way of processing through our minds, our own uh, efforts to save ourselves, our own uh, gods, our own ways over just simply trusting in Jesus and in the Father. So Adam and Eve have eaten this fruit, and uh, they've given the world over to a different king now. And who is that king? Who's in charge now? Satan's in charge. Jesus says that he is the prince of this world. So you see, well, we'll get there here in just a second. I want you to, I want you to see this. Genesis 3.15, so God's speaking to the serpent. He's speaking to Eve. He's talking to them about the consequences of their decision in turning life over to the serpent. Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity or distance or hatred between you and the woman, between Satan and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You shall bruise his heel. So this is the serpent. God is speaking to the serpent. And the seed or the offspring of Eve would crush the head of the serpent, essentially, is what's being said here. Did God do that? Did He make good on that promise? Yes, He did. Uh, Let me ask you this. How did He do it? By bruising the heel of Jesus. How did Lucifer bruise Jesus' heel? When the nail went through the top of His foot, it came out the back of His heel. But uh, there's a picture that I love. It's a portrait of just the feet of Jesus on the cross, and you can see the nail driven through his feet. And uh, behind his feet, hanging dead uh, off from the cross, is a snake. And yes, Lucifer bruised the heel of Jesus with the nails on Calvary, but because Jesus hung on Calvary's cross, Satan is crushed. He's defeated. Amen? Yeah, he's still causing problems for us, but ultimately he has lost. Now, there's some interesting language that's here, uh, where the ESV says offspring. The reason they've chosen offspring is because the original language, and if you have the King James, you'll see this, the original language actually has the word seed. Does any of your Bible versions have that out there? There's one. The older versions have seed. Now, the reason that the ESV chose that word as being problematic is that women, biologically, don't have seed. They have what a seed fertilizes. Isn't that true? And so this this is a very strange choice of language by God. The seed of the woman. Now, we go a little bit further and we find out something, but but let let me just put this in perspective for you for just a second. So here's Eve, she's sinned, God is talking about the consequences of that sin, and uh, God, she, God says to her, your seed, your seed, your offspring, will crush the head and overturn this curse, will be the one to defeat 
Satan and the serpent, what might you be thinking? Say you're Eve. Put yourself in Eve's shoes. What might you be thinking? That your son will be the one to overturn the curse. Isn't that true? Eve probably was not thinking about generations and generations later. She was probably thinking her firstborn son is going to be the one to fix this mess. Isn't that a reasonable train of thought? It sure is. And we see that she had this train of thought because of what she names her firstborn son. Let's read that together. Um, let's go to Genesis chapter 4 and uh, verse 1. Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, and this next ver part of the verse is actually the definition of the name Cain. It's literally what Cain means. I have gotten or acquired a man with the help of the Lord. Now, the Bible attributes where Cain came from. What does it say in verse 1? Where did the Bible say Cain came from? Are you all awake? Adam, that's exactly right. Adam knew his wife Eve. That's where Cain came from. Eve says something different. What does it say? I have gotten a man with the Lord's help. I, and it literally reads, I have acquired a man from the Lord. I have gotten a man from the Lord. Now, think about this with me for just a second. If women don't have seed, but yet her seed or her offspring uh, is, is, is going to be the one to reverse the curse, what very likely was she thinking about Cain? He would be the one, but not only that, Adam would not be his father. God would be his father. The seed would come from the Lord, and that's the gospel, isn't it? Isn't that true? Yeah, that's what Jesus was. Jesus had no earthly father. Are you all sleepy because you're just kind of staring at me? Jesus had no earthly father. And so, on one hand, this is sounding really good because it sounds like Eve is clinging to the promise. But I think there's something else involved here. Eve was the cause, one of the causes, for the fall of the world and giving it over to the authority of Lucifer. And isn't it just like us in human nature to think that we can fix what we messed up? And so Eve hears this promise, and I believe, and you're going to see more evidence, I believe she thinks, well, good, my firstborn son will be begotten of God, and he will be the one to reverse the curse. Now I want you to see what part of that curse was. Genesis chapter 3, now let's go back to Genesis 3, and uh, God's speaking to Adam now. Verse 17, Genesis 3, 17, it says, and to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the 
plants of the field and the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So one of the major consequences that God pronounces upon Adam and the world after sin was what? The ground is cursed. This side's doing really well. This side over here is silent. You just read it. The ground is cursed. You see that, yes or no? The ground is cursed. So that was one of the major consequences. Now, let me ask you this question. What was Cain's profession? He was a farmer. Why wasn't Cain the shepherd? Why didn't Eve raise him to be the shepherd? Remember our evidence so far. Eve, your seed, I don't have seed, your offspring is going to reverse the curse. Oh, my seed. And she, she's pregnant and she thinks, I've acquired a man from the Lord. I've gotten a man from the Lord. This is from him. This is that promise. And she has this boy, and she raises him to bring life from the cursed ground. You following me? You know what this reminds me of? This reminds me a lot of Mary at the wedding feast. Remember they run out of wine, and Mary, knowing that Jesus is the Messiah, goes over to him and says, hey Jesus, uh, they're out of wine, can you do anything about this? not my time. Why are you asking me to do this? It sounds a lot like that kind of scenario. So we have this issue. The ground is cursed. Sin has fallen. Eve has made her mistake. She hears this promise and automatically applies that directly to herself, thinking that she can take matters into her own hands. She raises, she names him, I've gotten a man from the Lord, and she raises him to bring life from the cursed ground. Wow, that's beginning to fall into place here, isn't it? Every, thank you. Every, and Hebrew tradition to this day, if you look throughout history, it teaches us that every Hebrew woman throughout time believed that her firstborn son could be the Messiah. And so this was filtered throughout all of time. Now this is really interesting. So we get to the point where we learn about Cain and Abel's life. And uh, we read here in verse, uh, chapter 4 and verse 1. Now Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain was a worker of the ground. In the, cur in the course of time... Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the... Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Since sin entered, God had taught Adam and Eve that the proper sacrifice is a lamb because the lamb was a symbol of the coming Messiah who would lay down his life for mankind. Amen? Are you with me on that? So why does, why does Cain... Bring the stuff he grew. He grew it himself. That's absolutely right. 
He grew it himself. And usually when we talk about this, we say, well, this is a symbol of us thinking that our own works can save us, which it really is a very good illustration of that. See, Lord, I'm a really good person, and I hope my good outweighs my bad. We talk a lot about that, and that's not how the gospel works. Salvation is full and free, amen? But I think there's more to it than that. Remember what the curse was? The ground was cursed. That was a big part of the consequences of sin. The ground was cursed. And Eve raises Cain to bring life out of the ground. And then when it comes time to sacrifice, Cain offers what he grew out of a cursed ground. So you tell me why he brought that. What do you think it is? To prove that he was the one. To prove that he could overturn the curse. See, Lord, the ground was cursed because of sin, but here's my evidence that I can save this world. I brought life out of the cursed ground, and here it is. I'm showing it to you. You see the difference there? And isn't that just like human nature? We've been doing that throughout all of time. We think that our good works are evidence to God. I'm good enough. I've got this. We set up these big institutions. We look at world governments and we think that it's all evidence that we've got this all under control and we find safety and security in the things of this world. And God says, don't find any safety and security in the things of this world. It's governments, it's institutions, it's kings, it's queens, it's, it's none of it. Don't find security in any of it. Only find it in the faith that you find in Jesus Christ. So there's a bit of Cain in all of us. Believing we can save ourselves and believing and trusting in what, the things that we set up and that we grow. And so something very interesting, and, and this leads us into this discussion of why things are the way that they are. So we read on, and it says, uh, but for Cain, verse 4, and Abel has also brought of the firstborn of the flock, and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel's offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So does Cain go, oh yeah, my mistake, Lord, I, I know you've asked for a lamb, I'm sorry, um, I'm going to go get one. Is that what he does? He gets angry, and the Bible uses a really interesting phrase. It says, his face fell. What does it mean if your face falls? Your countenance falls, the way you look. So it's your image. So all of a sudden, his ego and his image has been damaged. So here he offers this sacrifice to the Lord as evidence that he is the one to reverse the curse. And God says, mm -mm. and it hurts his ego, it hurts his self-image because he thought he was something and God's saying he's not that thing. He never was. He was never supposed to be that thing. And so it, it goes on. And this is how, what the Lord says to him. Verse 6. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. So what is God saying to him? Now, 
think about Cain's mindset. Cain is saying, look, I'm the one that can reverse the curse. And God says, well, I'm not going to approve of that sacrifice. And Cain says, yeah, but this is who I am. And what does God say to him? If that's true, your life will bear it out. Does that make sense, yes or no? If you are the Savior, your behavior will reflect it. Now, this is a perfect microcosm or little symbol of what's going on in our world. You see, Adam and Eve stepped in because they didn't trust in the Lord. They took matters into their own hands, didn't they? And in taking matters into their own hands, they trusted Lucifer's temptation and Lucifer more than they trusted the Creator. Are you with me? And thus, giving authority over this world to Lucifer. Now, did God put an end to that right away? He didn't. We're still here, aren't we? Did God put an end to Cain right away when Cain did this? Why didn't he stop him before he killed his brother? Ever wondered about that? So Cain has made this wild statement. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one. You're awake now. I'm the one to overturn and reverse the curse. That's the statement that Cain has made. And remember what the temptation was. God's threatened by you, Adam and Eve. He wants to withhold something from you. So here Cain comes and he shows, shows evidence that he's the Savior. And then God just offs him and kills him. Sends a lightning bolt down and kills him. What message would that have sent to Adam and Eve? Abel. To all the other angels watching. What message would that have sent? If you don't obey me, I'll kill you. That's one. And the other one was... God's threatened by Cain. Cain just gave evidence that he's the one to overturn the curse. And here, God just kills him when he offers that. That would have looked like Lucifer was right. Here's the thing, my friends. When we step in God's way, when we take matters into our own hands, when we take over control, God allows us to suffer the consequences of taking over control so that we will see we can't hold it together. Does that make sense to you, yes or no? And many times, that takes some time. And this is exactly what God says to Cain. God says to Cain, well, Cain, uh, if you are the Messiah, if you are the one to overturn the curse, then your life will be evidence of it. What you do from this point forward, it will prove that you are the Savior, the one to overturn the curse. Now, what's the very next thing we read about Cain? Huh. Verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, what's the answer to that question? Yes, we are. 
We are our brother's keeper. We are to look out for each other and care for one another. So you see what was deep in the heart of Cain. It was selfishness, wasn't it? It was selfishness all along. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Now this is where it gets powerful. Verse 10, the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. So remember, Cain raises up life from a cursed ground as evidence that he is the one to overturn the curse. God lets Cain's life play out. And Cain's life plays out and it comes full circle because the ground is the very thing that testifies that he is not the Savior. And this is the way it is for us as human beings. We step in and take control and we say, Lord, I've got this. And then our life begins to spin out of control. And very often the thing that we stepped in and took control away from God is the very thing that testifies that we are not in control. The very thing that we use as evidence that we're righteous often is the thing that proves we are not. And as we've been looking through human history, we've been seeing this over and over again. We've been seeing this selfishness problem. We've been seeing this, um, this issue where selfishness has made its way through governments and religion and things throughout the ages and gets us to a point at the end of time where it's a choice between trusting ourselves and trusting in Jesus, but there was someone else that trusted himself. We read about him in Isaiah chapter 14, beginning in verse 13. And if you are familiar with the story of Lucifer, the fallen angel that we now know of as Satan, this is part of his story. Verse 14, chapter 14, verse 13 says, For thou hast said in thine heart, this is God speaking to Lucifer, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. So Lucifer didn't think he was God because God is God, he wasn't. What did Lucifer believe, though? He, he knew better than God. He was wiser. He had things more under control. He understood, and he saw that as a threat. And the way we know this is absolutely true is because it references God's throne. Do you see that? Scripturally, the God's throne is a reference to his power, his authority, his kingdom, and his righteousness. So when Lucifer says, I'm going to exalt myself above his throne, or my throne above his throne, he's saying, my kingdom, my righteousness, my ways are better and higher than the creator's. Ah, how about that? And let's take the same thing we said about Cain into the story of Lucifer. What if when Lucifer said that, just like Cain said, I'm the Savior, what if when, God, when Lucifer said that, God had just ended Lucifer's life? Would any of the angels that were watching, would they have loved God simply because 
he's good. No, they would have loved him out of fear. The minute we question him, he's going to kill us. They would have obeyed him out of fear. The minute we, we, we question one of his commands, he's going to kill us. God wants us to love him by choice, not because we're forced to or we're afraid of him. And also, if you're one of the angels looking on, and you, all of a sudden you hear this angel saying, well, I know better than the Lord. I, I, I'm wiser. I understand things more deeply. And I think I can run things better than he can. And God just kills him right there. You as an angel watching on, what would you have thought? Maybe he was right. God's threatened by him. So God, wanting love, wanting trust, not out of fear, God does like what he did with Cain. He lets Lucifer's way play out. And here's the thing, my friends, and this is what is so dumbfounding, I'm sure, for God and the angels watching on. He, they are watching this world and seeing it completely spin out of control, coming apart at the seams, and we keep identifying with the world and not with Jesus. And the angels are going, what are you doing? You're here arguing about politics and flying politicians' flags and, and, and doing all these things, and it's spinning out of control and dying. Here you are trusting in yourself again, trusting in your own ability to take care of things and, and to provide for yourself. You think that you're taking care of yourself, but look at it. And, and ultimately, my friends, what we need to recognize is that what we have here in this world is a system and a life and a, a, a planet that has been overtaken by how Lucifer wanted to set things up. What we have here is an example of what Lucifer had in mind when he said, I will ascend above the throne of God. I'm going to take over the universe, and it's going to be better than what God designed. That's what we have here. And it's not that we can't see glimpses of God in each other and in creation still, but the way politics and governments are set up the way things are designed in this world, the way we treat each other, it's all the system of a fallen angel. Yet we so often <laughs> choose the way of the fallen angel rather than the way of the lamb. You know, it was deceptive too. And this is why it's so deceptive and we can't just say, well, you know, a foolish person would would choose the ways of this world and the ways of Lucifer, because it was so deceptive that it deceived even a third of the angels, the unfallen angels at the time, listened to Lucifer, and they thought it was a really good idea. Adam and Eve thought it was a really good idea. So when we're talking about temptation and trusting in the ways of this world and our own efforts, it's really tempting. All the more reason we need to be really careful and, and, and spend time with the Lord so we can see him as he really is, because it is tempting. Now I want to jump back into the book of Daniel, because Daniel, in its prophetic message, teaches us this very truth that we're saying, that man stepped in and took control, and through it, Lucifer's taking control of the world, and he's setting up one government after another, designed to run things as he would have run them, 
and not according to the kingdom of God. So in Daniel chapter 7, we talked about this last week, we have uh, first animal. Do you remember what that first animal is in Daniel 7? That first beast? A lion. That's exactly right. It's a lion. And that lion represents Babylon. Uh, the next beast was a bear with three ribs in its mouth, which represent, just like the second metal in Daniel 2, the second beast in Daniel 7 represents the Medes and the Persians. Then we have the Greeks, which is the leopard with four heads and wings. And then we have a beast that is beyond anything that uh, Daniel can describe. I can't come up with a word. Kind of looks like a dragon. Kind of, It's just a big, scary beast. Has ten iron teeth and horns. And uh, this is a... that metal iron should remind us of what's in Daniel 2 because the legs were iron in Daniel 2 and so the, the kingdom that conquered Greece was Rome isn't that right but something happens in the history of Rome Rome is not uh, conquered by any one empire Rome is just sort of pieced apart by different groups of people which are the same groups of people we have today and that is modern day Europe and there just happens to be ten, ten teeth, ten horns, which depends on the prophecy you're looking at. And that was the number of people that pieced apart the Roman Empire. But while we're in this stage of European control, uh, another horn rises up out of Europe. And it's a different kind of horn. It's a horn that has religious interests and thinks it can speak against God and change things. Now, why would it be that um, this focus seems to change. Well, if you look at it, uh, the pagan governments consolidated power mostly through political domination and some religious control, as we've talked about. But the, the focus is, was largely horizontal, things on this earth, power and control and military power. But after Jesus came into the world and after Constantine took over being emperor and he put together the pagan religion and the Christian religion and the Jewish religion all into one and Europe began to be split up, no political power could consolidate itself again. Because of the rise of Christianity and, and things were just changing. And so rather than the devil using human systems through political power, solely political power, he's seeing the rise of the church and the power that the church has over Europe. What does Lucifer say? Well, I've got to continue this onslaught. I've got to continue to try to run things and show that my way is the right way. So Lucifer says, well, I've been standing outside the church trying to hold the church back. Rather than trying to hold the church back, I'm going to join the church. I'm going to run things through the Holy Roman Empire. You following me? I'm going to run things through the Holy Roman Empire. And by the way, this has nothing to do with modern day Catholics. Nothing to do with modern day Catholics. This has everything to do with Lucifer changing the world through the power of the, of the Roman pontiff who basically was like an emperor in and of himself. And last sermon and the sermon before, we delved into this a lot in history. But the world has changed. Lucifer takes control, 
and he does all those things that he did, the Spanish Inquisition and all those things and the feudal system and the Catholic Church running things and setting up kings and arranging marriages and pulling strings and uh, giving money over here and taking money away over there to run things and maintain power. But the thing is, is this country, this country was settled by people that came from that part of the world. Are you with me? So the only thing that our settlers knew was a system that they learned from Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Europe, run by the papacy. So the devil was brilliant in joining the church it was the bridge that it took to chase God's people across the Atlantic Ocean and to this land. So what we have is man-made government, again, running things. And this is what we find in the book of Revelation. And this is why, my friends, I've said before, over and over again, we should not identify with the two-party system. We should never call ourselves Republican or Democrat because Republican and Democrat was set up by men through a perpetuation of a system that was man-made and it is set up and designed to perpetuate and live and survive and continue a world that has been overrun by Lucifer. Now, I don't want you to sit here and think, well, pastor's into conspiracy theories, because that's not what I'm preaching at all. I'm not saying, you know, let's take the measurements of the Statue of Liberty and it's a symbol of Lucifer. That's not what I'm talking about at all. I'm simply saying Lucifer took over control when Adam and Eve gave it to him. And he said, I'm going to work through mankind to set up my way of running things. And as you look throughout American history, it's not as rosy and beautiful as what we were taught in school. We see that dragon speaking as Revelation chapter 12 teaches us. And so we shouldn't, and it's not that we shouldn't have our own political viewpoints. It's not that we shouldn't have our own, participate in government and elections. It's just that we should identify as a Christian before we're anything else. And recognize, recognize, recognize that no party in this system is automatically the holy party. Republicanism is not the party of God. We have got to get that through our thick skulls. Just because it's Republican doesn't mean it's from God. And let me give you an example of what's happening right now in the state of Georgia. And this is not Pastor Hall politicking. This is Pastor Hall giving you facts in biblical perspective, okay? Obviously, Georgia was a hot-button state, a major, major battleground, right? And one of the ways that the Democrats won uh, Georgia was that they opened up churches on Sundays to be voting centers. They called it the caravan of, no, not caravan, souls to the polls. That's what they called it, souls to the polls. And because the, uh, 
predominantly black voters had more access to the polls on Sundays because it was at church, they had more early voting. Are you following me? And so, what do you think Republicans in Georgia have started to try to do? And this is in legislation. You can find it anywhere. It's all over, all over the news. What do you think Republicans have tried to do, started, not, started to do now? They have said, voting on Sunday is inappropriate. So do you see what's happened? They've lost political control, and now they are using religious arguments to try and maintain that control. My friends, that is the exact stuff that we see in the book of Revelation. It is exactly the definition of what happens in the book of Revelation. And we have to understand that. And again, it's not that we don't have our own personal political views. It's that we, my friends, as Christians, have to recognize that the world and its governments were not set up by God. They were set up by human beings that learned how to govern through the system of Lucifer. And it's not that we can't find good people and, and good things in certain political parties. What I'm asking you to do, my friends, is not to be Republican and not to be Democrat. I'm asking you to be a citizen of the kingdom of God. That's what I'm asking you to do. Leave aside your earthly political affiliations because they are not from God. They are a human institution that we learned from a fallen angel. That is the bottom line truth to it. And human history, as you've heard me say week after week, is going away from the Lord. It's, it's trending this way. The kingdom of God has us going this way. But as time goes on, we're getting further and further and further away. And as we get sucked into trusting the institutions of man, we're simply fighting to keep things that are dying. Rather than saying, I'm with the kingdom of God. Anytime we go to vote, and it happened to me this past election, you should struggle over it. Because you shouldn't identify with either one of them. We should go, boy, you know, I, I, I don't know what to do here. Every single election should be that way for Christians. And sometimes you even get to the point where you're like, I can't even vote in this election. We should struggle with that. Because we, don't, we can't stand for either side. Because they represent things that are not from the kingdom of God. And as I said last week, what's good for your country may not be good for your Christianity. I'll just frankly say it, like I did last week. Slavery was great for America. You know this country was built on the backs of slaves. The southern economy was booming. It was huge. It was great for America. So why wouldn't Americans say, we got to keep slavery? Ah, so what's good for my country may not be good for my Christianity. You see that? And that's a 
that's a, a big example, but there's a lots of smaller examples as well. And when you talk about humans and you talk about border issues and all of these things, I look at it and I go, you know, just as a, a, a white American, I look at it and I go, you know, this makes me comfortable to identify with this person's po particular political views. Because as a white American, in my experience, this helps me. And the temptation is, just like Lucifer, just like Cain, is to go, that's the right way. That's the sanctified way. But we think it's sanctified because it's what we identify with. Not stepping back and viewing the whole picture and going, ah, that might be good for my country or me, but it's not good for my faith. You see this, my friends? We are living in a world that's set up by man-made institutions, and the devil has found his way into all of them. And so, why are we where we are? Because Lucifer took over. Man gave Lucifer the, the power and man has been setting up governments and political powers throughout the ages, and he's allowing things to run their course. And as things run their course, and we get to know Jesus, what we should do is say, what I see in this world does not resemble my Savior. And you know what the temptation will be? The temptation will be that people will seem like they represent the interests of Jesus. But they will be only in it for selfish means. So what do you do as a Christian? This politician seems to be pro-Christianity, seems to be standing up for my faith, just like this issue in Georgia. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a day of worship. Why are they voting in the churches? Seems like a religious argument, but do you know what's deep down within it? People are losing power and control, so they're using religion as a way to maintain that power. It's a dangerous web. It is, it's, it's a challenging thing in our lives, but we have to recognize that it's going on. We have to recognize that it's all around us because God is letting things play out. And we as Christians with a biblical worldview should be watching things play out and going, boy, do I long for the kingdom of God. There's so much suffering. There's so much selfishness. There's so much hate. There's so much judgment and condemnation. There's so much anger. There's so much nonsense that goes on in the political world. I don't want this world anymore. I want Jesus. That's the place that we should get. So, after the ground cries out and condemns Cain because his brother's blood came from it, you remember what God did with Cain? He banished him. He sent him out into the wilderness, right? In Daniel chapter 7, uh, the Bible references the judgment starting because of the Holy Roman Empire. And you can see why God will want to start the process of ending things because of the Holy Roman Empire. Because the church was supposed to be the, the contrast on earth between the world and Lucifer's way of things and God's kingdom. Isn't that true? But when Lucifer joins the church, now that witness, there's no contrast there anymore. That's what we see in history through the Holy Roman Empire. There's no contrast. 
So the thing that God had set up to be comparison between the world and him, now that's been compromised as well. So God says, I need to step in. I need to begin to end this. And he raises up a people again. And he works in the heavenly sanctuary. And he's working to cleanse that heavenly sanctuary. And there's a lot to that. But what we need to recognize from it today is that our heart is connected with heaven's sanctuary. So as God is doing his work of judgment, he's working in our hearts to cleanse it and clean it out. Do you know why? So that we can be the bright, shining example of the kingdom of God. And this is why I'm so passionate about these themes, is because when we get sucked into the world's world and its institutions, it, it muddies up our witness to shine for Jesus. It really compromises our ability to show out the kingdom of God. Can, I, can you all understand that? The more we identify with institutions that have been set up by man with the leadership of Lucifer, the less we can resemble the kingdom of God. Because remember what Jesus said? My kingdom is not of this world. We need to represent a kingdom that doesn't exist here. That's our calling. And that's why I'm so concerned with so many of us, because it is so deceptive. It's so incredibly deceptive. And so God, once the judgment was, was clear, Cain had condemned himself, and the very evidence that he used, the ground, to show that he was the Savior, is the thing that condemned him because his brother's blood was there. He was sent out into the wilderness. And you know something? The Bible teaches us that this is exactly what's happening with Lucifer. So we're going to end here. Let's go to Revelation chapter 20. This is where we're going to draw to a close. Revelation chapter 20. So remember, God is letting Lucifer's way of life here on this planet run its course. And as it runs its course, we're supposed to say, I don't want that. That's not the kind of kingdom that I want. That's not the way of life that I want. And so just like Cain was banished, Lucifer is going to be banished. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, the ancient serpent, who was the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit, and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, and that he must be released, and then he must be released for a little while. Verse 4, then I saw thrones seated on them where those whom had authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of God, the martyrs who had not worshipped the beast or his image. Um, and then it goes on to talk about this. So what we are given is a, is a picture of Lucifer being banished. He's bound, just like Cain was bound when he was banished. And we see the saved of God in heaven and they're judging. They're sitting on thrones of judgment. And the reason that we know Lucifer is bound, because when Jesus returns, the Bible is very clear, those that have not put their trust in him can't stand in the brightness of his coming, and they're, they're slain. And uh, this, those that have put their trust in Jesus are resurrected and go to heaven with him. Those that are alive and remain go up together with them, and we have a thousand years with Jesus. Isn't that amazing? But why do you think God preserves Lucifer during that thousand years? Why doesn't he just put an end to him right then and there and be done with it? Here's why. God does not expect you 
to have all the answers right now. God does not expect us, because we've grown up in this world, we've lived in this world, He knows the pain that we've gone through, the suffering. He knows what we've been subjected to. He knows what's been hammered into our brains since the time we were children. He knows the sins of our fathers from the third and fourth generation. He knows how deeply these temptations run. He is not expecting us to be perfect. We should try, but he's not expecting that from us. He's not expecting us to have all the answers. Because during the 1,000 years, he keeps Lucifer alive and banishes him in the wilderness, just like he did with Cain, so that our minds can be made up once and for all. And that's the seats of judgment that Revelation's talking about. God is going to spend 1,000 years. Jesus is going to spend 1,000 years walking with us, taking our lives moment by moment, piece by piece, and explaining the difference between His will and what He wanted and what He was doing in our lives versus what we experienced here in this world. So that at the end of the 1,000 years, we will say, no more of you, Lucifer. No more of your world and what you designed and what you tempted me with and what you put me through because you thought you were in charge. So do you know what God is actually looking for from us now? He's not looking for us to have all the answers. He's not looking for people to be perfect and to not feel suffering in this world that we're living in. That's not what God's looking for. You know what he's looking for? He's looking for people that will go into the Word and talk about the things that we're talking about today and recognize that Lucifer's world is dying. It's run its course. He wants us to, to compare this world to Jesus. And he wants us to say, which one do you want? Which one do you want? It's easy, isn't it? It's so easy. But boy, we don't live like it, do we? We continuously make choices to fall back into Lucifer's traps. All God's waiting for is for his people to say, I just want Jesus. I want the kingdom that he stands for because the kingdom that he stands for is about selflessness and love and joy and contentment and nobody's oppressed and nobody's condemned and we're all loved and safe. God's just waiting for us to trust him, to lay aside our affiliations with this world and just want to be with Jesus. That's all he's waiting for. And he's going to spend a thousand years answering our questions and rewiring our brains so that he can really help us experience eternity because they're wired to this world right now, and I'm glad he's going to do that. He's going to renew our minds so that we only understand and identify with the kingdom of God. Amen? But he won't do that without our permission. That's what the thousand years is about. Us giving God permission to say, Lord, wire me differently. I'm wired like that world. Wire me like your kingdom. But right now, today, what God is waiting for is us to say, no more of this world. No more of this world's politics and hatred and selfishness. No more of this nonsense. It's man and Lucifer that have set this up. It's spiraling out of control and it's dying. All I want is Jesus. And we have to say, 
why would we want anything else? Why would we want anything other than Jesus? So our question, our, my appeal to you today is, when you see the world spiraling out of control, when you see the suffering, when you see the hate, when you see the, the political debate, when you see all that stuff going on, you go, oh, yeah, Lucifer. <laughs> yeah, thanks for the world that you set up. Thanks for putting me here. We have one enemy. No other human is our enemy. We have one enemy, and that is the fallen angel. That's our only enemy. And as this world is spiraling out of control and as we suffer, let's place the blame there. And in that earthly sanctuary system, when the judgment was all over, there were two goats. One goat represented Jesus. He was the sin bearer. The other goat represented the devil. And he was sent out into the wilderness just like Cain. And it wasn't that he was the sin bearer. It's that he bore the guilt. In the very end, at the end of the 1,000 years, the whole universe will point the finger at Lucifer and say, all of this has been his fault. But Jesus saved us from it. Let's be on his side. Let's be about the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's lay aside the systems of this world and live for the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. He is our example of the life that you've always wanted us to live. Lord, this world around us, so many things get blamed on you. You get blamed for so many things, Lord. Please forgive us for being part of that. Please forgive us for thinking that we can save ourselves or reverse the curse like Cain did. Lord, it's that, that selfish vein that has run through history. And Lord, just like Cain, the things that we think we can control are the very things that condemn us. Lord, this world should condemn the one who made it this way. And that is not you. That is Lucifer. So Lord, help us to look at this world and the suffering, not participate in its hatred and selfishness, but to look only to Jesus and say, I want to live in your kingdom, God. I don't have all the answers, and I still suffer and struggle, but I want your kingdom. I don't want this world anymore. Lord, may Jesus be our one pursuit, and may we be a kingdom citizen before we're anything else. Lord, please help us to shine bright for the kingdom of God. Bring people with us. Lord, we long for that thousand years where you, where you will rewire our minds to fully grasp what the kingdom of God is like so that we can forget the horrible world that we're in. Lord, as we see suffering, may we point the finger at the true source, and that is Lucifer, not you. Help us to long for heaven. In Jesus' name.